Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. My guest today is Dean Slider, author, teacher, lecturer, and expert on meditation and the Dharma. Dean is the author of such books as Fear Less, Natural Meditation, Cinnamon Nirvana, and The Zen Commandments. He also happens to have been a teacher at my New Jersey high school, which we'll talk about a little later. Dean has written stories, taught stories, read stories aloud for audiobooks, and observe the ability of stories to uplift and constrict our lives. But record on this computer. That's a good idea, right? Yeah. Then you'll have it. Wait, wait, tilt your screen. Your chin's on the bottom of the frame. Unacceptable. Good. Beautiful. All right. Well, welcome to the Story Talks Back, Dean. It's great to have you as our first guest. Great to be here, Dave. Really, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Uh, So, you know, our theme is stories and the meanings they have and the roles they play in our lives. And so just to get started, uh, I was wondering about the role that stories may have played in your childhood. Um, and you're growing up, what what comes to mind when you think about stories and your younger life? Yeah, you know, obviously I had the, the typical childhood, uh, you know, the children's book stories. I was a big Winnie the Pooh fan. Um, I must say from my earliest, almost my earliest reading days, I was reading Winnie the Pooh, and I was very tuned into, there was a kind of tone to it. There was this, this sweet, wistful sweetness to the characters that I, I picked up on and uh, was furious later when the Disney cartoons were made because they completely, I think, missed that, that tone and they missed the, oh, yeah. the, yeah, they missed the sweet dignity of the characters. They just made them oh, silly. Yeah. And did you, I mean, within your family, was there any sort of family lore or storytelling? Oh, yeah. Um, I was very fascinated by stories about, on my mother's side of the family, there were all these musicians. Uh, they all played clarinet, and uh, the last couple of generations of them played saxophone. And they went back from my grandfather, Teddy Greenberg, who who played with Sousa and the Paul Whiteman band and, um, uh, and Gershwin and um, 
Uh, he was in this popular group on the radio called the Singing Saxophones. He played with Tuscanini and, and uh, Leonard Bernstein. And then through his father that I barely remember meeting in the old folks home once, back to Tudris Greenberg in the old world who was the head of a klezmer group, a touring mm-hmm. klezmer group, who um, apparently died young uh, when he was uh, knocked off by the husband, by the jealous husband of a of a groupie. Wow! So apparently, things haven't changed much over the generations. Wow! So what mm-hmm. was I mean? What was the effect on you as a child and growing up of hearing all these stories? Oh, I just thought it was, you know. Thought it was cool. I thought it was fascinating. I think the the two stories that really affected me the most, that made the most impact, were actually two stories of my father's. Uh, he was the uh, pilot of a B seventeen over the European theater during the war, uh, Captain Harris Slider, and you know, like most of the veterans of that war, he didn't tell talk about it much. Didn't tell these stories, but I heard these two stories once. Um, one of them was that he explained they would go out on a mission and he said that if their primary target had been, um, uh, was fogged for some reason, they couldn't get to it. It had been fogged out, or as he said, or if Patton had beat us there with the tanks, he'd have to choose a secondary target. So this one time, my father, I don't know if he was the wing commander or something, somehow he had the responsibility to choose the secondary target. And looking at the the maps, the charts there, he saw that this whole industrial area of Germany had been wiped out, with the notable exception of the IG Farben works. Now, IG Farben was this huge international cartel that had a lot, it was known there was a lot of American money invested in it. And among other things, it manufactured Bayer aspirin, and it manufactured the Zyklon B that was used for exterminating Jews in the camps. So my father decided they couldn't get to their primary target. He said, let's go take out the IG Farben works. And he did. He flattened it. Wow. And uh, he said that, he said, and when I got back to the base, he said, I was like a ghost. No one knew what to say to me. He said, I didn't know if I was going to get a, an oak leaf cluster or a court martial. Mm-hmm. And they actually wound up transferring him to another base. Wow. So that, uh, I've always been very proud of that story. I've always had just, to, to me, this was the story. This is, this is how you do it. This is, right. this is, this is how you seize the, the moment. And what was the second story? The second story was... It was the night before a mission. It's the usual thing, and you know you've probably seen it in in films uh, about that war, where the men all go into the the tent. They get the briefing. You know they uncover the chalkboard. They get the briefing about the next day's mission. I don't know if you can hear that jet going overhead. Oh, very, yeah, appro- very appropriate at this moment. Uh, <laughs> They synchronize their watches, and then they, they go back to their bunks to go to sleep and get up early the next morning. So they did all that as usual. 
And my father was with his crew with whom he had flown, I think, a couple of dozen missions by then. He goes back to his bunk, and for some reason, there's some other guy already asleep in his bunk. He has no idea who it, who it is, doesn't want to wake the guy up. So he knows, okay, I can go to the infirmary. They'll have a cot and free there. And so he went and he slept in the infirmary. The next morning, they're pulling the crew together for the mission. Someone asks, where's the pilot? Where's Captain Slider? Someone else says, oh, he's in the infirmary. And there's a misunderstanding. They think he's sick. And so they go up with a different pilot that day. And that's the day they're shot down out of the sky and everyone is killed. Oh, my goodness. Right. And therefore, I exist. Wow. (laughs) Therefore, I'm here telling you this story. That's amazing. That is amazing. Always fascinated me since childhood. And, of course, I've always wondered, who was that guy sleeping in the bunk? Right, right. And in, in one version, in, in one version, it's me who time traveled back there <laughs> so that my dad would survive so that I could be born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Do you do you remember uh, you yourself sort of taking on the mantle of a storyteller? Do you remember at any point you're sort of showing an inclination to be a storyteller or share stories? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my mother said I was a late talker, but once I started, I never stopped. (laughs) (laughs) And my, um, and I just would go on and on. You know, some kids are like this, like they don't know the difference between thinking and talking. There's Mm -hmm. no, there's no membrane between the two. And I was, I was like that. And so one day it was so, I think I was about seven. And one day, It was so out of control. My father sat me down and very gently explained. He said, you know, Dean, if you just talk all the time, you won't learn any new things. If you stop talking from time to time and listen to other people, you can learn some new things, have some new knowledge. And wow, this was such a a novel, exciting concept for me. I jumped on my bike and this was back in the days when seven-year-olds could ride all over the neighborhood by themselves. (laughs) And I just rode along until the first people I came to, some kid about my age walking along with his little sister, who I didn't know them from Adam, and I pulled over on my bike, got off, and I was so excited about this thing of of not talking all the time that I explained it to them and talked on and on about that, about not talking to them. (laughs) That's great. But it does, it does sort of raise the, the fact that listening is important for storytelling. I mean, you have to be able to take in the stories before you can let them out again, right? What did you say, Dave? I, I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. So, I, I mean, you, you and I both met when you were teaching at Pingree, which is a mm-hmm. A uh, very well-known private school in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and you taught there for thirty-something years. Yeah, thirty-three years, and no, no time off for good behavior. <laughs> and uh, you know, you 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 taught some amazing classes. Um, 
and you had an amazing reputation there. And so obviously you were the person or one of the people introducing these students to stories and the idea of stories, um, important authors. What did you find uh, in terms of their receptivity to stories or um, how did you sort of come to convey the importance of stories to these kids? Well, you're absolutely right. Of course that, you know, it's all about the story. Everybody loves a story. Mm -hmm. And as a school teacher, as an English teacher, what I had to make clear to them was this is, this is not just school. It's not, I had to break through the kind of uh, automatic, the kind of crust that's that for most students surrounds school, surrounds academia, mm-hmm. and break that up into into uh, you know where every you know where it's all about. Or is this going to be on the test, mm-hmm. right? And how do I fit this into the five paragraph essay and and so forth? <laughs> that that to kind of get them to relax back into their, um, you know what in Zen is called beginner's mind, the the fresh original. Um, you know, in the Gospels, it's where Jesus says to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a little child, that childlike appreciation of the story. Mm-hmm. So what I would do every year, and, you know, I taught um, 10th grade English for about 30 of my 33 years. So what I would do every year, the, the first day of class with my 10th graders, I had a, a picture book from my young daughter, uh, which was Jack and the Beanstalk. So the first thing I would do is I would read them, Jack, and say, okay, Uncle Dean's going to tell you a story. And I would read them the story of Jack and the Bean, Jack and the Beanstalk, hold the book up so they could see all the pictures. And, you know, everyone would have a good time with that. And then I would get to the end. I'd say, so this is this, you know, sweet little childhood story that probably your parents read to you in the, in the cradle. And clearly the moral of the story is, uh, be like Jack. You can solve all your problems by stealing and killing. So at that point, they go, huh, wait a minute. Right. Just taken on the face, that face value. That's what the story is saying. So I'd say, so clearly we have to dig a little deeper. So then I would, and now this would probably sp- spill into the second day of teaching. This whole shtick took about three, four class days. Uh, I would walk them through the basics of Freudian theory. And I would explain that there are, there's such a thing as Freudian critics who analyze literature in terms of, uh, in Freudian terms. So I would go through all of that. And, you know, when I get to the Oedipus complex, everyone would start freaking out, getting very uncomfortable. Um, And then we would go back through Jack and the Beanstalk, looking at it, I said, let's look at this through the eyes of a Freudian critic. Mm-hmm. And then it made perfect sense that the, the giant is the, the father figure and, um, uh, and so forth. And all the little details worked out so beautifully. And when we get to the part where Jack is chopping down the beanstalk while the giant is on it, and clearly this is a whole cat, you know, the, the, the playing out of the Oedipus complex and the the castration fantasy and so forth and the kids would go wild and at that point I knew I pretty much had them on my side for the rest of the year and 
then they would say, okay, now we understand the story. This works so well. Clearly, this is a Freudian tale. So then I would say, ah, but wait a minute. There are other schools of literary criticism. And then I would talk about uh, Marxist theory. And, you know, the, the, the whole, go through all of that. And then we would once again read through Jack and the Beanstalk, this time through a Marxist lens. And okay, this works perfectly. The giant is the, is the capitalist, the bourgeoisie, Jack is the proletarian, mm-hmm. the armed conflict is necessary, right? And, and then, okay, great. And then, but wait a minute, here's feminist theory. And then wait a minute, here's Jungian theory. So by the time we'd gone through it these four different ways, we were, we were in a position where I could say, all right, there is the story. And great stories persist through the generations. And mm-hmm. they persist because they're so rich we can, that there is no definitive reading. It's just like turning a, a diamond. You just keep, it's the one diamond, but we keep looking at it from the different angles and the light bounces around in it in all these different, different ways. So cool. Yeah. I had a lot of fun at that job. And did you have any, um, in terms of how you sort of encourage them to write, I mean, did you help them in terms of trying to evolve the stories of their papers or, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Well, a a couple of things. Um, Again, I had to do something to try to break them out of the, the, the uh, kind of, you know, the, 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 the toxic aspect of academic training. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you know, Pingree was very much a, um, you know, that was a college prep school. Um, and, and their whole approach to writing papers, they'd been in middle school. I would get them in the 10th grade and, and 11th and 12th grade. And in middle school, they'd been taught this very cookie cutter approach to writing a five paragraph essay right, where you, you have an introductory paragraph, and then you have your thesis sentence at the end of that, and then three paragraphs in the middle that expound your arguments, and then the last paragraph sums it up. I mean, I'm sure you can still say it, say it, and say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's good, that's a skill that they need to have. But if they if that's all that they write, and they think that that's all that writing is about, it kills it, mm-hmm. it kills it. Um, I remember what one of the things they would be taught is don't use the first person. And then I would assign, you know, writing a personal story and the kids would go, but wait a minute, how am I going to write a personal story without using the first person? Mm-hmm. I say, use the first person, right? It's a different game. It's got different rules. So I, you know, I would do that. I would have them, for instance, we'd, we'd read some Hemingway and we'd get tuned into what's the uniqueness of Hemingway's style. And then I would send them home. I'd say, observe something, observe someone in your house reading, uh, um, uh, eating, eating a meal and describe it, right? Just write a paragraph describing it as if you were Hemingway observing it. Mm-hmm. And they would all say at first, oh, that's easy. Hemingway, that's baby writing. My, my baby brother can do that. And then they would come back the next day and I'd collect them and start reading them anonymously out loud. And we'd start critiquing them and go, wait a minute. Now there it's not just strict objective 
ob, ob, moment by moment observation. There you you judge. You said the 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 juice was uh, the pizza juice was trickling out of his mouth. It was disgusting. Right? Hemingway doesn't say it's disgusting. He just he objectively describes it and lets you decide it's disgusting. That's what puts you in the scene. Wait a minute. There you're re- you're 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 reading the other person's mind. Mm. You can't. Hemingway doesn't indulge. They're so used to thinking abstractly that this simple, simple act of thinking concretely, what is the concrete objective experience moment to moment uh, presented in a, you know, repertorial way. It's, it's such a rigorous discipline that that would be brand new to them. So I would do Mm -hmm. things like that to, you know, loosen it up, try writing in different ways. Mm -hmm. One of my, one of the best exercises I would do is I get them. Okay. um, Loosen up your hands, loosen up your hands. Now take your pen and hold it. So, Grip it tightly. Now start gripping it really, start relaxing your grip on the pen to where it falls out of your hand, falls out from between your fingers. And now go just a little bit, find that place where you're holding it with the least possible tension just before it falls out of your fingers. And then Mm -hmm. feel how that relaxes your body and then feel how Mm -hmm. that relaxes your mind. Now put it on the paper and see how lightly, and make just draw curlicues, draw loops. See how lightly you can press the paper before you stop depositing ink on the paper. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. Now I'm going to give you a prompt. I'm going to say something. And then once I say it, start writing whatever comes into your mind. Don't stop writing. Don't lift the pen except for the space between words. And um, I'm not going to collect this. So don't censor yourself. Don't worry about spelling. Don't worry about punctuation. And then I would give a a really provocative prompt like, uh, I was scared when... And I tell you, and at any point, if you're not sure what to write next, just once again, write down, I was scared when. And then afterward, we would talk about them, you know, without them having to share them. And they would say, boy, all this stuff started flooding back. I'd forgotten about that time when I was five and I had to jump off the high board or, you know, whatever it was. So that got story rolling. So you're helping them, you know, let go of their their inhibitions and really get in touch with like the elemental stories that are kind of under the surface. Yeah. And then they, they find out, you know, why writing is great because otherwise, you know, just the, the purely academic approach kills it. Mm-hmm. And then also that gave me the luxury of being really rigorous about teaching essay writing. Cause mm-hmm. uh, as you know, that was, that was a part of my reputation there. I, cause, cause I'm the demon proofreader. I could, pretty much spot a misused semicolon from halfway across the room. <laughs> and, and, oh, and the, the thing I would do, the, the most, it took me several years to learn this. The most valuable thing I learned about teaching writing was to make them read their papers out loud. Mm. When they come in for their one-on-one conferences with the drafts of their papers, I'd mm. say, okay, start reading out loud. As soon as they started reading out loud, they would, go, oh, wait a minute, wait, that's, they, they'd start getting embarrassed seeing the things that the ear will pick up things that the eye won't. You're, you're engaging whole other brain circuits. You're, you're engaging the, the voice. And actually, you, you were doing audiobooks uh, as a kind of profession for a number of years. 
Um, yeah, I, I still do it from time to time. I've got a little studio set up in, in my walk-in closet where, uh-huh. where a whole lot of audio, a whole lot of the audio that you hear is done in people's closets, <laughs> especially now in quarantine time. And, you know, you were reading other people's, I know you've done your own audio books, but right. you've also read a number of other people's books. Right. So what, what did having the audio experience of, of other people's books teach you? Yeah, a couple of things. The, uh, one thing that it taught me was that most, most writers <laughs> needed my class because they, they clearly have not read their stuff out loud. Mm. <laughs> I would, you know, there was one particular book. Uh, I remember this one so vividly uh, because it was, I don't want to say the topics. I don't want to embarrass the author. Not going to name names. You know, no, but it was a fascinating topic. And, and it was just the, I love the content. It was just all this stuff. I was going, wow, it's so great. But clearly, I mean, he, the, the author was a scientist. He was not a literary person. And, and you could see his thought process on the page. He would get so excited. And you think, and then this, oh, and then this, and then this, this connects with this. But it would all be one sentence, half a page long. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would be places with his book and with a number of books where in the, the, the voice in the booth, I would be thinking, oh, if only the author were here, I could show them. Let me put a period there instead of a comma. Mm-hmm. Let me, if you just move this phrase from here to here, then the whole thing will work perfectly for the listener. Mm-hmm. And, and if only they were here, they would say, of course, Dean, go ahead. They'd be down on their knees with tears of gratitude going down their cheeks. But they're not here, and I'm not allowed to, as a narrator, you're not allowed to make those changes. Right, right. But, I mean, did that affect how you started to write your own books? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, especially the experience of narrating my own books, because I thought I was listening well to my own writing, but mm. now I really listen. I'm in the middle of writing a new book right now. And I, I now find that I'm, my, my writing process has really changed because I'm now writing an audio book as much as I'm writing a print book. I'm doing the both simultaneously and it's made my print books better. It's made my sentence structure clearer it's brought the voice element more to the foreground i think even on the printed page and it's so interesting how you know the audio aspect of you know transmitting information through podcasts and audible has just sort of come full circle you know after so many years of video being the only thing that mattered you know yeah, and before that, you know, print being considered where where literature resides, where the story mm-hmm. resides. Um, you know, we started off doing this sitting around the 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 fire, right? Telling the saga about hunting the woolly mammoth or whatever it was. Right. It was oral. The um, you know, most of the 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 the, the great epics uh, are written in verse, and they're written to be recited. They're written probably to be sung. You know, you would accompany yourself on a lyre or something. Right. Um, the 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 Vedas of of India were passed on for centuries without being written down, and the you know the Vedas are voluminous. You know, like thousands and millions of pages of it if they'd been written down on pages, which they weren't. And so, and there was so much of it that you had to 
uh, divide them up. And there were different clans, different mm. family lineages that were responsible for passing on different parts of the Vedas from one generation to the next. And they had these incredible um, uh, mnemonic drills where first you would, you would recite, let's say, just for argument's sake, that the first syllable of the first word in, in one section of the Vedas, let's call that A, and the last syllable of the last word, let's call that Z. So first, you would recite the Veda going A, B, C, D to X, Y, Z. Then you would go Z, Y, X, W, all the way to C, B, A. Right? Then, then you would go, oh, that we're just getting started here. Then you would go like A, C, B, D, C, E, right? Like that all the way down to the end. Then you would do that backwards. Then you would do all these different patterns. You would do patterns where you'd go A, Z, B, Y. Like exercises. X. Yeah. Till they meet in the middle and then cross and go to the other side. Uh, and, And it was so that every syllable had been gone over in all these different ways so that not a syllable would be lost over the generations. And that worked well until the, I think it was the 13th century with the Muslim invasion where some of these family groups were, were slaughtered, they were wiped out, and then whole sections of the Vedas were lost. Mm-hmm. It just, it raises the point about, you know, recording stories and, you know, the, this focus on right. saving stories as they were, exactly as they were, and how that, you know, obsession progress through the printing press. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, but and what I was getting to with that, so that's the beginning, this this intensely, exclusively oral tradition. Most people were not literate anyway. And then when literacy begins, and there's some historical evidence indicating that in each culture, when literacy first begins, people would use the printed no, no one read silently you know just as when you look at a at a piece of sheet music you don't just sit there looking at the sheet music silently you sing it or you you play it on your instrument that it was considered a score for something to be done out loud and that's what printed text was considered to be it was like a score for saying a thing out loud and then the idea of reading silently without mouthing the words comes along later. And so that shifts our whole sense, you know, the, the voice go becomes internal and, but there's a danger then of voice getting lost of the whole thing becoming more abstract. The very valuable thing I learned about teaching English, teaching writing is that, you know, you know, the kids at Pingree were all pretty intelligent. They could all learn to write adequately, competently. Mm-hmm. Some could learn to write well. Some had an additional capacity to learn to write well. You know, I would ask them, i say, you know, when you, re- when you read the draft of your own paper, ask yourself, would I read this stuff? <laughs> i say, I have to read it. That's my job. I'm getting paid. Would you read that writing if you were not being paid to, to do it, if, if you had to? Mm-hmm. Right? What made the difference between kids who, who did not learn to write well and those who did? 
And I realized that the difference was the ones who learned to write well had that sense of inner voice. They could hear the music mm. of their own sentences. The others were just completely caught in meaning. Their brains were just processing the meaning of the words and not hearing the sound, not hearing the music and how the music can be used to support the meaning. Interesting. So even, even as we're reading silently, we're still experiencing the music and almost the talking yeah, internally. Yeah, yeah. but if, if we're good readers, I, mm-hmm. think, I think a lot of people and maybe most people miss that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why when people tell me, oh, read this thing, you know, this is a, what do they call it? Guilty pleasure, which to uh-huh. me, that's, that's right. an oxymoron. Right. I, I don't feel <laughs> guilty about any pleasure. Um, but they'll say, okay, this is a beach read. Right. Right. Meaning I know it's not great literature and all that, but oh, it's a hell of a story. And I've tried to read those things and I can't. Nah. It's it's horrible. It's like fingernails down the chalkboard, and it's because the the voice is so awful. Right. The voice and 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 for people to be able to read this stuff, they I just assume they're not as tuned in to voice, not as sensitive to to voice as. I had the exact else. same experience. I'm always amazed that people can read just for plot and ignore yeah. ignore the the yeah. writing. Yeah, and interestingly enough, this is this is connected with the fact that uh, a lot of kind of you know crappy novels have made terrific films, mm. right? The mm. Godfather, Jaws, you know, they're mm. they're beach reads. Mm. The the books are beach reads. Uh, the the films are terrific. On the other hand, great novels usually make crappy films. There's been something like three or four film versions of The Great Gatsby, and they all suck because that that which is essential to it, which is the 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 voice, is what's lost. So film can add something to the so-called bad books, but it can only take away and away from the good books. Yeah, because what makes the good book? Yeah, I mean it's a generalization. Right. I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm not not thinking of right now. Right. But but to me, what makes a great book great? is that which is lost the moment you translate it to another medium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the writing. It's it's not the when you were talking about the, uh, the pen exercise that you did with your students, mm-hmm. reminded me of some of the exercises in Fearless. Mm, uh, right. For example, like breathing through your feet or mm-hmm. some of the other things that I, you know, I've actually seen you do in workshops. Um, and I just... I wondered, you know, how you see people when you're trying to help them, you're trying to sort of expand their thinking, how can stories be helpful for that? Or how can they be obstacles? Right, right. I would say that in that context, the key thing is recognizing stories as stories. You know, we have these internal stories. And it's funny because once we shift from the field of literature Mm -hmm. to the field of, you know, meditation and enlightenment and therapy and all that, then usually the word story goes from being a positive thing to a negative thing. Right. Right. You'll hear people say, Oh, well, that's just a story. Right. Which, Which is, which is a valuable perception because people will get caught in these internal stories. And actually maybe where it connects here is just what we're saying about not, 
being tuned into the internal voice. They don't realize that this, they don't hear the voice as a voice. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of it. So they don't hear the, 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 they're caught up in the content of the story. They think it's real. They think it's reality. They don't hear the fact that it's, it's just a story they're telling themselves. So here's, this is my latest opus, Fear Less, Living Beyond Fear, Anxiety, Anger, and Addiction. And, you know, we could have gone on here, loneliness, depression, despair. <laughs> we kind of ran, ran all the usual suspects. We kind of ran out of room there. Um, and one of the, the chapters in the book is titled, Drop Your Thoughts. Drop mm. Your Thoughts. And I suggest the exercise where you do something like, you know, slap your hands in front of your eyes, something to just kind of shock yourself as a cue to, okay, just for five seconds, drop your thoughts. doesn't mean push them away. It means relax your grip on them. You know, when, 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 uh, if you say, okay, well, I'm trying to drop it, but it's not going away. That means you're trying to push away, which is, that's not dropping. That's another, you know, pushing away is a form of holding on. Drop means just relax your grip. And then in its own time, it tends to fall away. Or even if it doesn't fall away, now that we're not gripping it, it doesn't matter. We're, it, it can't grip us unless we're gripping it. Hmm. Okay. So that's one exercise that I recommend there. Just for five seconds, drop your thoughts. After six seconds, pick them up again. Do this maybe several times during the day. And then what that does is it starts to loosen the grip. It start, you start to recognize that thoughts are just thoughts. There, and that you really, because actually you drop your thoughts many times a day without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And people will say, oh, this thing, I'm carrying it around all the time. Oy, I'm schlepping this thing that, you know, my bad marriage or my crappy job or my God, the political situation, whatever it is, it's there all the time. So I'll ask them, is it there when you're parallel parking in a tight space? Right. And then they go, oh, no, it's not. Right. Because at that moment, you don't have the bandwidth to right. enter to engage with those thoughts. Right. And you go, is it there when you sneeze? Is it there when you're engaged in doing your, your 1040? Is it right? When, and then you realize you actually drop it many times during the day. Hmm. But then when you, here's the, here's the, the trick. When you pick up the thoughts again, built into the thoughts are the thought, this is here all the time. You see, see how tricky it is. But that it also is just a thought. Right. So then you start to realize, oh, there's actually a lot of space of freedom in my life that I haven't been recognizing. But now you start dropping your thoughts, you know, dropping all those stories in a deliberate way. You start realizing, oh, I've got some, some I, can, I, can in, I can treat myself to more of that freedom. Now, the other exercise that I give is just recognizing what some of these story typical stories are hmm. and and i and i list some of them um typical stories i'm the good child and i'm responsible for everyone i'm the bad child and i will disappoint everyone right don't you off the bat know some people that oh yeah i think that's going on in the background for them that's 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 the context. That's the assumption 
uh, around which a lot of stuff happens for them. Sooner or later, people always let me down. I must be intimidating. I must be desirable. I have to be my father or I have to be my mother. I have to reject my father. I have to reject my mother. There's a catch. It's every man for himself. Those were the good old days. Men are fill in the blank. Women are fill in the blank. No one can tell me what to do. I deserve more. I deserve less. It's never okay to be alone. If I let my guard down, someone will hurt me. If I don't get to sit at the cool kids table. If I'm cynical, I'll be safe. Life is so unfair. Life is so confusing. Life is so predictable. Being happy is so difficult. Right? So just recognizing that, oh, that, that could be a story there. Mm-hmm. That could be something that I've just, I've actually invested a lot of energy in writing that story for myself. Right. And that, because what happens is then once we've done it, you know, you've put all that work into it. You don't want, you don't want to lose it. Right. I mean, it's, it sort of tells you who you are. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it may suck, but it tells me who I am. You know, at least, it, at least I'm something, right? Yeah. At least I'm something. It gives me some control. It gives me some, some sense of that's, um, there's a quote in the old Testament. I think it's in the book of Proverbs it says at, as a dog returneth to its own vomit, right. so the fool returns to his folly. Right. You know, it's making us miserable, but we keep going back to it because it's what we know how to do. And, right. But once you realize that you're doing that, once you see that, oh, this is just a process. This is, these are stories, and I'm right. I'm the, the author of the stories, and I'm the consumer of the stories. Then you, have, you start to have a choice. Do I want to keep doing this? Let me try dropping that for five seconds at a time. And pretty much everything that begins with the word I is a story, right? Yeah, yeah. And it turns out then, you know, as you know, Dave, when when we start getting deep into the non-dual philosophy that comes from uh, India, the Advaita teachings and the, you know, the the Buddhist teachings, uh, it turns out that the I is the original story. This, 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 the, the, the assumption on which all other assumptions are based is that there is this separate, definable, continuous thing, uh, like a wave that somehow exists in isolation, not just as part of a continuum of ocean, and that is I. Right. And then all the adventures of I and all the characteristics that we ascribe to it, that becomes, to switch metaphors here, that becomes like the, um, the Velcro ball that everything else, all the other stories stick to. Right. So, and pretty much what's done in therapy is, you know, stripping away the pieces, the, the, the lint, one piece of lint at a time from the Velcro ball. And then, and, and that can be very valuable, but then the approach that's, that's taken in, um, you know, the meditative world and the, in the, the Buddhist world is just, uh, you know, reveal the Velcro ball for what it is, blow that thing up. And then, then the stuff may be stick still floating around, but there's nothing for it to stick to. And that's why the Dalai Lama smiles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
you know, we, we tend to assume that I is a consistent yeah. being yeah. and not just a network of continuously changing stories. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we say, I am whatever. I am a Democrat. I am a vegetarian. I am an atheist. I am a, you know, or I am a Republican. I am an Episcopalian, whatever. Mm -hmm. All those things. I am a mother. I am a son. Right. Mm -hmm. When you go to sleep at night, when you're in the state of deep sleep, dreamless sleep, what's your religion? Sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Then you have no religion. You have no politics because those things are a hundred percent made out of thoughts. You, You don't have the bandwidth available to, to think the thoughts. So those characteristics, which you think of as being inherent in what you are, they're, they're not, they're not. And in fact, that stuff changes over time. Maybe, maybe, you know, you were, you had one political attitude 20 years ago and and it's changed now, you know, or we think I am this body, but you know, the body that I look down and see now is not the one that I saw 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. But what is consistent is there is this silent sense of I, the sense of the awareness the, that is unchanging, that's aware of all the changing stuff. And that's what, you know, as you know, the Advaita and the Buddhist teachings and, you know, all the meditative teachings point us to that experience of that which is transcendent, that which is beyond story, which is the... the the, the, the spinner of and then the, the listener to all the stories. And it's represented archetypally in all the religions. You know, in, in Hinduism, you have the, you know, the before creation, you have this like ocean of milk, I think. And Lord Vishnu is floating on that ocean on his bed of cobras. And, he, and out of his navel comes the lotus upon which he dreams our universe. And that's that's us. That's awareness dreaming this 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 you know the mega story of that we call the world we live in. Just just thinking about you know the moment. Uh, social media is playing such a big role in how we're perceiving the world, the pandemic, the election, um, and. Social media is grounded in stories, you know, stories that people are telling about themselves and right. each other. I mean, do you think there's any lesson or any advice that you would give people reading stories on social media? And yeah, get, off of- a twi- get off of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know people who are, you know, and I know that's like, you know, become a very important part of the ecosphere yeah the 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 information plumbing and the misinformation and the disinformation plumbing unfortunately but i know people who are so they have their heads so much into twitter and where it just becomes toxic and where it just becomes about you know casting and recasting other people in as these the different characters you know the bad guys or the good guys that you've decided they they are now right it feels like we have less flexibility in imagining 
yeah. you know, who we might be in the story yeah. and who the other guy might be. Yeah. 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 Is there anything else about stories in terms of your life now and the role they're playing or what you see around you that, that you think we should reflect on? Yeah. Um, stories are defined by having a, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. We, we characterize different kinds of stories largely by what kind of ending they have. You know, if it ends with, and then they died, that's a tragedy. If, if it ends with, and then they, they got married and lived happily ever after, that's a comedy. Life doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It goes on and on. Um, you know, I, I remember the, the, the TV dramas that, that, that we grew up on, you know, the cop show, or the doctor show where the heroic doctor or the heroic cop would generally save someone's life, right? Because you see the person would be in danger. And then, you know, in the, at, at, by the end of the show, the heroic, the hero had, had saved him or her. So, oh, great. He saved my life. One day, years later, I realized actually no one can save your life. What they can do is postpone your death. <laughs> you know, that's, that sounds, that's kind of a gloomy way to put it. But, but the point is, it, it goes on and on. It's a continuum. It's a continuum. There's birth and there's death. And it's like, you know, the waves going up and down on the ocean. There's this bigger thing, which is the ocean. All our stories, by nature, by definition, we're having to, you know, look at some small piece of the ocean and and talk about it and try to do it, you know, at best. Try to talk about it. Try to describe this this piece, this this bit, this area of wave activity, truthfully enough and skillfully enough and perceptively enough, and you know, if if we're lucky and everything goes well, beautifully enough that somehow a sense of the, the bigger truth, the truth of the whole ocean somehow comes through in, in that story of those waves. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Dean. Really thank appreciate you. your, your time and your insight and, uh, and your being my first guest. <laughs> really a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me, Dave. Thank you. All right. Take care. Appreciate it. <laughs>